Welcome to the High Performance Groundwork Podcast. My name is Hugo Menard, and my guest today is Noah Healy. Uh, he is a recreational mathematician using game theory to change finance. Uh, Noah recognizes the responsibility to produce products that not only drive results, but that also protect ethics and morality. Uh, he views himself as an algorithmist with a conscience. I hope I said that right. <laughs> not a word I use very often. So welcome, Noah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, so I just want to start by, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about changing finance and how game theory plays a role in that? Just so I understand a bit more of your background and context that you come from. Certainly. Um, so let's start with game theory, actually. Uh, game theory was developed in the 20th century, and it's the mathematics of interacting agents, um, where agent is really a, a very general category of entities that are capable of making decisions and have interests. Um, so it's possible to use game theory to model almost any dynamic system. Um, there are physical uh, models of physics that use game theory, where the laws of nature are, are players whose interests are defined by things like Newtonian mechanics and so on. Um, so game theory offers some very powerful tools to examine the strategic structure from a mathematical point of view. Uh, and one of the things that has really become available to us using computers and the insights of information theory is ways to measure things that we generally don't consider to be measurable or, or sort of more amorphous. Um, and so in the financial system, money tends to be regarded as a sort of very splodgy thing, sort of conceptually and philosophically. It's, it's, it's incredibly concrete in its actual terms. Um, you know, you either have it or you don't. You have credit, you don't have credit. You can pay money to get things. But uh, the, the role of marketplaces is actually as an information and communication system. Markets are functional to the degree that they provide wide area knowledge of the common interests of many businesses simultaneously. Um, so if, if the marketplace says that copper and gold are equally valuable and the businesses don't actually regard that as true, then lots of people will make a lot of investments that are very stupid and waste a lot of time and money. Um, but markets don't value copper and gold equally because the 8 billion or so humans don't do that. Um, and so those investments are made much more sensibly. Uh, and that's the value that markets offer. Um, so what I found was a game theoretic relationship between producers, consumers, forecasters, and the market operator in a commodity market to create a four-way 
collective interest, if you will, um, where each party um, acts in a way that is maximally beneficial for the other parties in order to maximize their own personal benefit. So you get this scenario, whereas in the existing market structure, um, it's sort of a free-for-all. Uh, market operators can trade, um, various forecasters or speculators trade, buyers trade, sellers trade, everybody just has to trade. And so it's sort of this one big mosh pit and everybody's just going at everybody. And so you're, you don't really kind of know who your counterparties are. So you're trying to do your best to act in your own, own interests. But at the end of the day, the speculators and the market operator have these consistent advantages that the producers and the consumers can't access. They don't have enough information. They don't have the position to take advantage of those things. So by changing the system so that the each person participates in the well-being of the groups that are outside of themselves um, by basically mushing each of those roles together into a single point of view actor and then the individuals getting these you know sort of shares of that grand actor based on how much they can actually do um, you create this situation where while you're still engaged in competition you're only competing with other people who are in some sense in the same event that you are um, if you're a producer, the more you can make and the cheaper you can make it, the better off you're going to be. But it's no longer the case that you also have to be better at negotiating than some guy who's actually buying from you. That doesn't matter because there's a single negotiation that sort of all the producers are getting together. And the producers do better based on how much better they are at producing, not how much better they are at working the system. The forecasters at the same time are providing that market information about where these markets are going in the future. And so the better they do that, the larger a share that they'll have of the forecasting income um, and the better the forecasts will be. Uh, but they can't just find some poor people who have to take bad deals and just take take those bad deals off them like that that business goes away uh, the producer is a very symmetric situation to the consumer where sort of the more valuable you find the stuff the better off you are because you know the more you'll be able to buy at a, at a good price for yourself and for the operator um, their risk essentially vanishes uh, because they no longer have to dip in as a privileged middleman, um, which it's sort of a, it, the existing system is kind of a rock, paper, scissors thing where the operators can beat producers and consumers, but the forecasters can beat operators and the producers and consumers kind of lose to everybody. Um, and so it's sort of this, this like jockeying position. Everybody wants to trade with producers and consumers because that's the best deal. Um, producers and consumers mostly can't trade with each other because they're just so far out of the loop. They can't hook that up. 
Um, and so it's this competition to sort of grab up the nickels to, to, to get those best deals. Um, and so this changes that dynamic into a situation where the producers and consumers are trading with each other. There's a commission that's coming out of that. And then people are earning shares of that commission based on how much they can help the marketplace. And because of how information theory works, we can measure exactly how much that they're benefiting the marketplace and provide rewards and costs based exactly on that amount. Wow, that's one hell of an explanation. That sounds really amazing because I guess what I'm hearing is that or, or kind of what I see at the moment is this system where there seem to be some very real problems. And what you seem to be, what you seem to be providing is still a system, but one that functions better and is still using the same components. So if we were to apply that system you just described, would it require a painful death of the old system and one, a, a a death that we would experience as hardship or could that be a transition that could happen relatively smoothly? I believe that the transition will be smooth um, because uh, although not for everyone, um, this, this system provides positive roles for those four roles that I defined, the producer, the consumer, forecaster, the operator. Um, there are other people that operate within the existing system, some harmlessly, some harmfully. Um, there's people who like to gamble that just use the, the markets instead of going to you know, Vegas or Macau or something. Um, they don't really offer much value to the system um, yeah. as it stands. Um, and they don't really matter much to the system as it currently stands, that they're not going to make much money. They're not going to lose much money. They're, they're kind of just going to be there playing around. Um, this, this design produces a much less exciting circumstance for them. So they're going to have to go to Vegas and Macau. Um, one category that's currently very critical are uh, basically liquidity providers, people who will step into the marketplace even under relatively high degrees of uncertainty and create future hedges um, for people who are desperate enough to need those, which is basically everybody in the production and consumption industry. Um, that's a fairly lucrative and still moderately risky uh, thing that you can do if you have a very large pile of money in order to absorb the risk. Um, basically, um, you can set yourself up again to go back to sort of the, the gambling thing. You can become the house. So uh, okay. if you make a bet, if you make a bet that has, you know, a 90% chance of paying off a little bit and a 10% chance of losing a little bit, then it's probably going to work out for you um, if you can afford the loss. If you can make tens of thousands of those bets and they're all basically independent, then it's definitely going to work out for you and there's no problems anymore. 
Now, to be able to make tens of thousands of those bets, you might need hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there's, there's institutions that that's what they do. They've got hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they provide that security to the existing markets. This design provides that security in a different way and basically gets to shrink the middle, cause a lower cost as a result of that. What that means is that users, if you've started up a pilot parallel one of these markets, users can notice that there's a cheaper alternative. They can voluntarily transfer their non-committed trades to this less expensive marketplace. Um, and, and then it just takes off. Uh, the, the people who will experience pain are those who have commitments within the old marketplace that they can't unwind. Um, because as people leave that market, it will destabilize. And, and as it destabilizes, people who have taken on those risks with any degree of leverage will, you know, we've, we've seen some of these events, um, uh, I guess the Chinese ever, ever guard, ever greet, what are they? It's so close to the, the one, <laughs> the, the, the Suez Canal, I, I get the names wrong, but the, the, the Chinese property developers, they just made their coupon payment. So there is still a financial system on planet Earth right now, and that's that's to be commendable. But um, it looked it looked touch and go for a little while um, that uh, that there might not be a bond market in China um, or or something along those lines. Um, so that that could happen, um, but those risks would be contained um, essentially to to people who are speculating on leverage uh, within those marketplaces and and mostly contained to the people who aren't really useful um, in the new in the new system yeah okay and because we're talking a lot about systems here and creating a, a structure where things can inherently function better is that a correct understanding just to yes yeah and so do you see other systems in corporate or the workplace in general um, that are currently problematic in some way, whether that be in the area you're talking or in the like every day I go to work and there's a particular kind of system in my relationship with my boss or with customers or, or however that's set up? Uh, yeah, frequently there is, um, unfortunately. And um it gets into there was a there's a paper that was published um dang it i'm not gonna remember where uh it was in a it wasn't a corporate organization um uh, journal back in the 70s on something called conway's law uh and what this person set out is the proposition that the communication structure of an organization recapitulates the design of the products of that organization. Can you say that again in simpler words? <laughs> I'm not sure I understood that completely. So to use his example, um, if your company makes cars, if the people who design the wheels don't talk to the people that design the axles, your cars, wheels and axles won't connect to each other. 
Okay, cool. Yep. <laughs> um, and since so much of corporate behavior has become software-based because computers are very convenient and software is a lot more flexible than hardware is, uh, we've entered into this situation where corporate organizations, which were developed really for running railroads, um, the, the modern corporate organizational structure was invented um, in the 19th century by uh, telegraph and rail companies that really, really didn't want to slam 100,000 ton, you know, trains into each other. Uh, and so needed an organizational and communication structure that could allow the management of national and continental scale enterprises, which is why it's fairly unsurprising that there's so many national and, and transnational scale corporations because that they're designed for that. Um, the problem is that they address a psychological need of using humans to do these tasks uh, because that's all you have in the 19th century. Um, if you're gonna have complex decision-making, you're gonna need a person to do it. Um, and so the existing sort of corporate feudal structure um, is a reflection of what's involved when you use human beings to, to make complex far-flung decisions. Um, unfortunately, that structure, that tree structure, uh, which is absolutely necessary when using fairly large numbers of human beings because we just won't work any other way, um, then recapitulates itself to your software. And in software, we've learned a lot about data structures, particularly in the 20th century. And what we've learned is that trees really actually suck um, because trees are graphs um, that are connected and have one less edge than nodes. And that's it, that's, that's all trees are. Um, so, if you've got 10 things and nine connections of those things, and you can go from any one of those things to any other one of those things, they're connected by a tree. Uh, and if you add one more connection, they're not connected by a tree anymore. Okay. Um, it sounds strange, but yeah. <laughs> yes. So, it turns out that these general graphs are far more powerful than trees because the number of unique connections that you could have between 10 things um, is actually the 10th triangular number, which is 55. So whichever nine connections you're using, um, there's 46 that you had to leave by the wayside. Um, and if any of those were useful, then you're, that's, that's too bad. That's too bad for you. You don't get to use those because you're structured the way you're structured and you're not going to be able to, to, to change that up. Um, right. So, so can I just pause there just to make sure I'm understanding this? Is you're saying that the structure we have at the moment, because it's based on a structure where there are human beings, 
it means that there are possible when you apply that to software, which is where so much of the work is done, there are possibilities that are not being used because the structure is poorly designed for software. Correct. Right. Wow. Okay. In particular, um, and while I don't advocate for or disadvocate for like buying software solutions to things, um, it's important to understand that when you do buy software solutions for things, all of the organizational decisions that were made by the people that wrote that software are your now brand new organizational decisions. I have seen multiple organizations um, sort of rip themselves up uh, trying to integrate multiple third-party software solutions. Um, and I've seen them rip themselves apart trying to just use single-party, single third-party software solutions where management was under the impression that they were capable of organizing their, their organization and decisions had been made by people from the software that they bought. Um, and they weren't the same decisions. And that meant that there was this impedance mismatch between how the company actually functioned because software was doing not the lion's share, but certainly significant amounts of work. Um, and, and what the company's impression of how it functioned was. Uh, and what will frequently happen under those circumstances uh, if you've got good people is that they will make it work. And what happens then is management becomes increasingly tuned out of how their own company works. Um, and if you grow very quickly, that can lead to a situation where you become extremely stagnant uh, because you don't, know, you don't know how your own company functions anymore um, because you're, you've basically given two conflicting signals. Your people, instead of sort of saying, help, I can't, I can't do white and black at the same time, um, just kind of come up with whatever, you know, shade of gray looks okay to them. Um, if you're very large, that, that happens differently in different parts of your country, company. And, and then you lose the capacity to communicate with yourself. And that's, that's when you can't really move forward except by accident. Can you give some real um, down-to-earth examples of what that communication or the lack of communication really looks like? Because I can get it conceptually, but I think um, practical examples will help kind of crystallize that. Um, well, not to get into too great of detail, but uh, if you have a situation where uh, new product development um, is mating up with, uh, say, sales and procurement, uh, where each one of these groups has a different version of what is happening. Um, basically what happened was the new product development uh, fractured the, the product line into 
multiple pieces. And so what had been happening before that was that there was this sort of one continuously improving central product. Um, and the integrations got off, off schedule, the project fragmented, and um, when they attempted to bring it back together, uh, it couldn't be done. And so what then happened was each successive release, because they were still operating off of this successive release cycle that procurement and sales thought existed, um, was in fact uh, effectively a different product. So imagine if you had five different features, each one of which could be on or off. This, this one has like feature one and three on, but the rest off. The next release has two and four on, but the rest off. The one after that has four and five on, but the rest off. And each one only has two features. Um, and so procurement is buying based on sort of this continuous add-on type thing. Um, and so they would suddenly have shortages because um, this release of the product needed only these kinds of materials um, and they would be buying sort of a flat amount of materials for everything. And so they'd suddenly have overages and shortages. The salespeople would be like, oh yeah, the next thing's gonna fix your problem because that's how we work. Well, that's actually six releases down the line and nobody even knows that like that's, we're just gonna find out in six releases that, that the problem got solved because that's when we kind of got back around to solving yeah um and and so product development's dealing with this this hairball that's sort of like growing out of out of control management's uh solution to this was to further fragment the development cycle um because they had they had this issue that sales was coming to them with where the their customers would say okay you know this is a problem can you give me a fix for next release the way you used to do and they would say of course we can and so um the they basically demanded that the that they refragment and develop sort of each version that was live somewhere forward to fix their personal issues that led to further deterioration of of the project chain um and and yeah it, it got it got extraordinarily messy <laughs> yeah i can man well I, I was gonna say i can imagine but i'm not sure i can that just sounds enormously complicated and cumbersome um and within all of that do you see any of those systemic issues also being present when it comes to things that aren't software but are more like how does that affect the the well-being of the humans in that organization uh in this case it was extraordinarily negative um i a few people from that organization uh will will get together for lunch like you know not not these days of course but sort of like once a year we'd get Together. And I, I actually quit. Um, uh, I'd gotten to a point at that organization where everything that I could do that was useful was done. And 
so there was nothing else I could do for them. So I was like, well, I've got some money in the bank. I don't need to be here anymore. I can't help. I'm leaving. Um, and, and that's what happened. Uh, they, many of my colleagues uh, were separated when the company did a fairly large move in restructure. And it was a dark time in their lives. Um, you know, marriages got broken. Um, there was there was there was some positives too, but people just like they looked younger after they left um, than than while they were there. There was some very negative things that happened uh, as as a result of that. Uh, and yeah, if you're if your job is pushing a stone up a hill that that is not going to go up, then then it becomes very grinding. Um, and there's going back to software a little bit because that's mostly what I do. Um, but the, it's it's bizarre for people whose job it is to to be in climate controlled offices and type gently to use terms like death march to describe what they do. But but we do use those terms, and I've seen them, and it's it's extraordinary um, watching like intelligent people working 24 hour days um, uselessly uh, and, and for months in some cases, um, uh, not 24 hour days for months, but uh, you know, 100 plus hour weeks for months with, with several multi-day stretches and so on. And, and coming to the end of that and not being able to solve the problem that you're working on um, or, or solving the specific sliver of problem that you're working on and then dumping a mess on the organization that's so large that it dwarfs the problem you just solved. Um, and, yeah. and I've seen, I've seen both of those things happen. Um, and it, it can happen from other sides as well. Like I said, uh, this was, this, this got out of hand in the software department, but um, sales and procurement were both having issues and um, digging into to those issues. They were, they were running along the same sorts of, of problems where, uh, you know, they were buying machines um, without appropriate direction of what machines to buy and, and trying to figure out how to dispose of them and, and didn't have any good direction for that either. And we're getting themselves crossed up. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it can be, it can be pretty shocking. Um, the, we had, uh, we had a, a, a sysadmin who was doing procurement for a like 300 person department. Um, and he got called on the carpet by the CEO for you know, spending over a million dollars um, because aren't computers quite cheap? And yes, computers are quite cheap. Uh, 300 of them cost 300 times what quite cheap it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then when you have all the wires you have to pull and you know we had to knock this wall down and then we needed more server space and like, this is what it costs. Um, and and you hear tales out of uh, Amazon, for example, where you know Jeff Bezos can show up in your in your morning team stand up if you're the ones that are screwing up the company, um, and that 
that can work out. Amazon obviously is, is doing very well for itself, um, but there, there aren't a lot of Jeff Bezos's that have the energy and, and sort of awareness to hold that, that large a situation in their heads at once. And I don't know like what his staffing looks like. Um, I'd imagine it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, mm. but, uh, but yeah, lots of people don't have that. And, um, if, if you've got an owner operator that's writing the checks, um, uh, there can be a lot of sticker shock moments that happen, uh, once, once organizational breakdown starts becoming serious. Yeah. And if you could go back in time to when you're in that position and things started to break down with all of those things that you've described is the only solution to change the system of the software or are there things that could have been done in terms of starting a conversation with whether it was like the the CEO or someone in charge or you know, getting certain teams together to start to figure things out? Like, would that have been a solution on a person, person level? Or it was, is the only, was the only solution just a giant complete system shift? Well, the thing to understand is that thanks to Conway's law, we can see that these are inevitably identical. So in fact, it has to be a conversation. It has to be organizational shift by the power brokers, the managers have to buy into the fact that how they manage changes what their what their design elements are going to look like. Um, and that I have not seen that successfully negotiated yet. Um, I've seen instances at sort of third hand. Um, uh, famously, uh, the first iteration of the, the Obamacare website was a total failure. And, you know, it, it had later emerged that they'd spent some completely ludicrous amount of money on this thing that could handle maybe hundreds of transactions. Um, like that the, there was a I think the first infamous thing was like CNN or, or one of those networks did a live demo sort of preview and it crashed during the live preview so nobody's on this system it exists solely to demonstrate how awesome it is and it can't even do that and they had spent maybe a hundred billion dollars, maybe maybe tens of billions of dollars, that they had spent more money than you spend on like the entire slate of Hollywood blockbusters on this, on this website that could not be used at all by anybody. Um, and so the story goes um, that like Obama gets on the phone to the Google guys, um, they tap their like number one scale expert. Um, he gets the call and he says, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not working for the government. What are you insane? Um, and they're like, whatever it takes. Um, he's like, are you, like you, you mean it? He's like, yes, yes, we mean it. He's like, okay, um, my team, my people, 
total autonomy. And they were like, yep, that, that works for us. And so for like three or four weeks, there were these like flip-flop wearing California hackers uh, working out of the White House um, with just total autonomy. Like, you know, you're a four-star general. I just showed up at 10.30 in the morning to start my job. Uh, if I want something, you're going to give it to me whatever it is, um, because I know how to solve this problem and obviously you don't. And it's the most, you know, this is this is the boss's legacy. Um, it doesn't have to be done like that. Uh, and and I for for most for most computer experts, I think it'd be pretty uncomfortable uh, to, to offer them that kind of that kind of relationship. Um, but you you need to be aware that you know when you decide what your company's reporting structure is, you're also deciding what your company's system is. Um, and if 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 Joe's a real go-getter, but sales shouldn't be reporting to you, then it doesn't matter that Joe's a real go-getter because if sales are reporting to you, then you're not going to be watching you know, procurement, which is what your company is all about, say, um, and, and then your supply chain is going to blow up on you one day and you're going to wonder what, you know, why you couldn't sell anything. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a hard problem. It's, it's one that doesn't really have general solutions. It's something that, that people are going to have to work through themselves. Um, but, you got to bring understanding of the the computational aspect of things to the table, um, and that doesn't automatically come uh, with your CIO necessarily. Um, most CIOs are good at handling people um, and are generally good at understanding the implications of technology, but being able to work through the, the sort of computational modeling of an organization uh, is, is a different kind of skill. There was another uh, instance, again, this is sort of a secondhand thing, but um, there's a, a data science company here in town and I was at one of their internal sort of test meetings um, the guy, one of their guys was going to be giving the keynote um, at an AMA conference, uh, American Medical Association. Um, and the subject of the keynote was data modeling, that the, the first and most important task that you have to do, and the one that's not a technical problem, um, is deciding what everything's going to mean. Um, so computer systems can have enormous amounts of recorded data in them. Um, but unless you sit down and do the work of, of connecting what's getting recorded to what it's supposed to mean, then when the time comes to shove those, that data set into algorithms, um, you can wind up with some very bad occurrences. Uh, and and 
along the lines of if you ever tried to like decode uh, one kind of file format with the wrong kind of uh, uh, system. Um, so this this goes way back again, but like if you had image files that read JPEGs and you put a GIF in them, most of them would just crash these days. But in the old days, they would try to try to display nonsense <laughs> in many cases. Um, so, so making sense out of things, that's a human task. And in many cases, that's, that's a management task. They're the ones who, who need to understand what's going on. Um, and so they have to buckle down and get into the weeds a bit and, and kind of work through what those things mean. And until they've done that, the algorithms don't do you any good. Uh, the ability to look over a set of curated data and extract connections within it don't mean anything if the data hasn't been curated first. Um, and extracting connections within uncurated data has limited utility. Um, there are specific instances, uh, Google's original page rank algorithm sort of took advantage of a kind of natural curation that takes place uh, through link connection and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Amazon or Netflix recommendation um, takes advantage of some natural curation that occurs structurally with how human beings function. Um, but yeah, um, without that, you're, you're over into much less tested AI technologies that, you know, some of them, so, some of those applications work, some of those applications fail. Um, and I've seen a lot of executives just, just kind of say, well, you know, that's why I bought third party software. So I didn't have to do that. Well, that's not correct. In fact, you, you still do have to do that because if things don't mean anything, then there's no point in doing them. Yeah. And I think that, that that's um, so, so true in terms of, I think we're currently seeing a, a, a surge in this notion of having purpose to your life. Um, and certainly Simon Sinek, who, um, who, who wrote the book, uh, Start With Why. You know, his thing is have a purpose, have a reason. Um, so yeah, that's a really um, important kind of crossover, whether you're talking machine or human. Yeah, yeah. Well, humans humans need purpose and resources, and arguing about which of the two is more important is is sort of meaningless because people who lack either of them die very quickly. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's arguable that that the death of those without purpose is worse than the those without resources, and that one's pretty horrific. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's quite the challenge. Yeah. Um, I just want to pick up on something you said, which was that um, when I was asking about, do you need to change the whole system or can it start with a conversation? And you were saying, well, it's kind of one and the same, like that, that they're both so interconnected. You mentioned that you hadn't seen conversations really work out. Um, are you aware or um, do you have any ideas on what made those conversations not work? Uh, I've seen, I've seen a few different things in that regard. Um, 
the one that I think I've seen the most often is is just kind of resentment um, that uh, if if you're in a situation where uh, people resent the source of the change, um, which is I think kind of central because what's going on is basically the computers are complaining about you. And it's like, well, what, what, like, I don't care if my table complains about, like, I've, I've loaded it down. <laughs> it doesn't complain. What's going on? Um, and the thing is, for physical systems, people are actually okay with that. Like, you know, you've got a table that you can put 300 pounds of stuff on, you put 500 pounds of stuff on it, the legs break and it collapses. And you're like, well, buy a new table and don't do that again. Um, but in this sort of squishy thought conceptual realm that computers live in, um, people just do it all the time. They're like, okay, crush it. And what, it's crushed? What's with that? Like, why am I ever waiting? Why does, why does anything bad ever happen to me when I'm in this universe? Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, there's a certain amount of resentment there and and that's that i don't know i don't know i've i've never seen that one get bridged um i i think there's a certain kind of sensitivity where the thing is we are using computers to do things like making decisions um and there isn't the physical feedback that occurs from getting people to do things from you. So if you were, if you were managing, you know, an army and you were overworking the, the artillery clerk, there would be signs of stress that you would see in that person. Um, and hopefully as a good, you know, officer, you'd be able to tell that, you know, Marshall is, is, is on his last legs and he needs, he needs a break. He needs another person helping out. You know, he needs a team of other people helping out, you know, something, something's going on, yeah. but somehow, um, you know, as soon as it's like a pocket calculator doing it, um, every time anything goes wrong, it's just because it's just because you know it's the thing's fault not the fact that you've overstressed it um and so that kind of understanding of of setting that in place um i think would be helpful um one thing and this isn't something i've seen personally but these are again secondhand type things uh creating physical feedback mechanisms. Um, so uh, the, there was an early internet day company uh, that I heard about that had wired up uh, like physical little dial things um, to measure, to, to various measures of, of how their system was operating. So- Oh, okay, yeah. So rather than, because like right now I can type something into my computer and see what the entire, like, you know, 
how the memory breakdown's going, how much CPU is getting used, all that kind of stuff. Um, on a network, it's a little bit more complicated, but you can set up monitoring and find out like how much internal bandwidth you're using, things like that. They had connected all of these things to little potentiometers and covered an entire wall of their headquarters in these potentiometers. And most of the time, it was basically just a conversation piece. But every few weeks, there'd be a thunk noise <laughs> as virtually every single potentiometer <laughs> went either all the way down or all the way up all at the same time. And then everyone would drop what they were doing and start doing whatever it was that needed to get done right then. Um, that, kind of, that kind of feedback system um, could be quite helpful. Uh, designing those sorts of feedback systems uh, is, is Again, that's sort of a personal journey type of a thing. Um, and particularly if you're doing remote work, it isn't necessarily practical to ship a potentiometer board to every single <laughs> yeah. every single location around the world. Um, uh, but yeah, just kind of general advice, get into the weeds a bit every once in a while. Um, you know, take 10% of your time and, and go actually, you know, move things around yourself and see what, what gets involved in doing it. And if what gets involved in doing things isn't what you think or doesn't resemble what you think it's supposed to, dig in, try to figure out how to make things work the way you think they're supposed to or, or update your beliefs about how things function. Um, and, and get that done. Uh, and that's, I, I think that's the biggest, the biggest point I've seen um, where things have gone off the rails. Uh, yeah. I really love that example you gave of having those physical monitors for, for those things, because that speaks to something that I see very much in the world is that the more we go conceptual or the more we go into working with computers rather than being with a real human being or typing an email rather than actually talking to someone the more we miss things and things get lost in translation and there's i i get the sense that the lack of reality um not only has a deep cost on us as at a kind of um emotional level of like what it feels like to be human but also at a practical level um do you have any thoughts on, on that idea in terms of, because we very much seem to be going in the direction of more and more computers, more and more systems, you know, AI is coming on more and more. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I will basically talk about this at any provocation. Um, I think computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. Um, and I think it's completely fair to say that steam engines ended the social, political, religious, and cultural structures of basically everybody. Um, the, the Industrial Revolution is basically 1700s to the computer revolution, if you will. So like 1980 being as generous to us as possible. Um, if you, my favorite 
example is if you held a debate between Queen Elizabeth I and Queen Elizabeth II on the subject, had there always been an England, do you think they'd be on the same side? Because I don't think so. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I was an absolute monarch who ruled over a theological state that she was the head of the church and the state and she was in charge of everything. Queen Elizabeth II has none of those traits. Queen Elizabeth I uh, won the, against the Spanish Armada and started setting in place the British Empire upon which eventually the sun would never set. Queen Elizabeth II oversaw the dismantling of that. Um, granted, it didn't happen overnight, uh, but what steam engines did and in internal combustion engines later was that they changed the economics of physical work. Human beings, this isn't really all that well known, but out of all animals, humans have the most efficient digestions. And that's because we can eat cooked food effectively. And so we essentially pre-digest our food by cooking it first. And so we don't have to spend as much effort extracting nutrients and energy from it. So we are a more efficient engine um, for getting work done. If you have a certain amount of food and all you have is animals to, to do the work, humans will get more work done than really any other animal will. And so human society without steam engines was based around that human labor calculus, basically. Uh, but steam engines are more efficient than humans are, economically speaking. Uh, coal is still pretty cheap. And a human being, a 100-watt incandescent light bulb basically represents the entire energy output of a single human being. Um, the useful work output of that human being is less than that. That's probably more like 40 watts. And that would really be pushing it mostly. Um, so the amount of coal you have to burn and how much it costs to get that much coal is minuscule compared to what it costs to feed and house and clothe and entertain and organize humans. And so figuring out how to get more of our work done by burning coal or gas or you know, nuclear power or hydroelectric or whatever became the engine of improving human well-being, human economies, human military capacity, and, and everything else. And so things that stood in the way of those improvements of capacity had to be removed from society. And that meant that a society based on how well you could manage to ingratiate yourself to the royal court just didn't have a future. Um, what computers do is provide us control systems that are cheaper than human brains. Um, as I was saying before, up until you know 1980 to be as generous as possible, if you had any even slightly moderately complicated decision to be made in a system, you would need a person to sit there and make that decision. Um, and probably one of the most graphic examples of this would be modern smart bombs versus the Japanese kamikaze from World War II, um, where those were guided 
missiles that were using human brains to guide them. Um, and we can use a fairly cheap electronic board to do that now. Um, and so similarly to before, military, economic, social capacity are all going to be magnified by this technology. And so the forms that we have developed in order to manage our societies, we shouldn't expect them to be robust um, to these changes. And you asked before about, you know, relatively clean transitions. Uh, I think working towards clean transitions is is much to be commended, and and it's certainly what I try to do. Um, but I think the transition is inevitable. Um, the, the concept that the old would be able to stand against the new when the new is going to have so much more capacity than the old is, is just insane as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so we have the institutions we have. We need to expect most or none of them to survive. And so we need ones that, that are going to work um, and working with the, the psychology of, of us is going to be critical to that because obviously if the system doesn't take into account what humans are, then that's going to be bad for everyone. Um, but the physics of the technology is also a critical thing to, to consider and computers work the way they work. Um, and we have to acknowledge that and, and sort of take it on board um, rather than treating them as, as so many people do as, as simultaneously kind of magic um, and nothing um, kind of, kind of like dirt yeah. you walk around on. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's, the hardest problem I think there is, um, and the most important problem I think there is, uh, and it's and it's wide open. Yeah, and I, I love what you said about seeing computers for what they are and what they can really do. And I think that because you know my a big part of my focus is people and well-being, and I think that's that translates so well in terms of seeing people who they are and what they can do in terms of you know if if someone is well and healthy um that just becomes a much better essentially rather than just demanding someone do something without um second thought of wondering if it's the right thing or if they can do it or if it's going to be too taxing um i just want to shift around back to that project uh, or, or that work environment you mentioned before where things kind of went south pretty intensely um is there any conversation that you wish you could have had with anybody or any other department that might have helped things go a bit more north um i actually got to talk to just about everybody I wanted to. I, in fact, had a few sit-downs with the CEO, which is why I quit, because it became clear that that he wasn't responsive in any way. Um, 
and there they did have uh you know like they had one of these change management systems where they they like brought in consultants and did focus groups and stuff like that uh, and i was i was on one of those this was after i had several rounds of talking to, to various people and um built a system that i'd built in order to try to get a page to get people onto um and in one of the group conversations that i was in uh basically everybody else in the room asked that question they were like well you know i can see things going wrong um i wish that i could talk to my boss's boss or my boss's boss's boss or somebody else to to like fix things or you know get them to look at what's going on or but i'm afraid of repercussions because the place is very big it's very impersonal and you know i'm i'm afraid of reprisals and uh and you know the person the coordinator was like you know is anybody else afraid of reprisals and you know 90% of the room raises their hands and she, she, she comes around and it's like, well, so you aren't afraid of reprisals. Like, why aren't you? And I was like, well, cause it, nothing that you say to them matters. Like I've, I've gotten into like, uh, an insult email chain with the head of HR. Not only am I still here, none of the policies I was talking about have changed a comma since since inception um you know i i warned that there were going to be problems uh then i brought up specific examples of problems that occurred um and then the policy didn't you know i i, I pointed at external research nothing changes like they they just don't care that that you know they don't engage um so maybe it's easy for me to say this but you know be courageous um speak your mind uh it 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 is hard to do um even when you do have savings um like you know i i quit that job and then took a month and visited a family that was stationed in beijing and so wandered around in china this was like 10 years ago wandered around Beijing for a month, which was just insane. Um, you know, I live in a small town <laughs> uh, called Charlottesville. Um, Beijing, I think, had like 11 million people at that time. <laughs> you know, the town I live in has a population of like 50,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was about 40,000 when I was born. <laughs> now it's about 50. <laughs> Beijing apparently um just like 10 years before I'd gotten there had popular was was maybe around the same size as, as the town that I I was born in um like you know it it was a it was the head of government but they they were not like a real place yet um back yeah. in the 70s cuz China was still an extremely rural place and then you know now it was super new york with you know massive like uh massive 
glass and TV architecture on top of it. Um, so yeah, I just kind of wandered around in the days for a little over three weeks, um, just gawking at stuff. And that was really cool. Um, obviously not everybody's in that situation, but you know, uh, you you take your swing, and and if you strike out, you know, go back to the dugout, go go find some team to play on that that will actually play with you, um, if if you if you can. Um, and the thing is, in spite of the fact that that's kind of a nightmare scenario, they were very successful. Like that they that broke because they got big they did get big they they stagnated they didn't really get bigger after that but they were already quite large and the guy ultimately sold the company for in excess of a billion dollars um could he have done significantly better than that well there's a pretty decent chance that he could have um because they stopped doing the things that allowed them to grow almost immediately after they started to grow. So if they hadn't stopped, they might've been able to continue growth um, quite a bit more than they wound up doing. Uh, but, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's hard to call a billion dollars a failure. Um, yeah. In the and business world. Because you've also worked in startups and companies of different sizes, have you found that the kind of the lack of conversation, the the lack of flexibility, is also present in smaller companies? Because I know a lot of people go, "Well, it's those giant, big, huge companies that are the problem, and small businesses are just fine." Is that uh, been your experience? It can it it can happen anywhere. Um, and where small businesses have an advantage is that they basically don't have an internal structure, um, communication wise. If, if everybody from the janitor to the CEO is, is kind of stuck in the same closet with each other, then going back to that graph example from before, all 10 of you are talking to all 10 of you, all 55 of those edges are in place all the time um and what happens in the better environments is that as they catch things uh and sort of grow you figure out which are the connections that are important and you reinforce those and the ones that aren't so good what happens is um the management sort of decides what the right answer is going to be um, or or you know reads the room wrong or whatever and reinforces the connections that weren't so important and so that once you get out of the room with everybody uh it you break whatever was was sort of making the system go um and so it's you can you can see you can see things coming apart even in the like twenties to thirties when that happens. Um, yeah. And oh, 
I had a question and it literally just, I was about to ask it. Um, yeah, because in relation to uh, CEOs or managers at some level, not having that conversation being flexible, are there things that cause that, that cause them to not want to talk or um, not have that conversation and connection of some kind? Well, it's difficult. Um, uh, in in the companies I've worked for, it has not been the case that the CEO's job was to like go golf with his buddies twenty four seven and kind of do some deal making off to the side. The, they had real concerns that they actually had to to be involved with in managing the company. Um, and particularly in, in small or rapidly growing scenarios, you get into kind of a, you know, pulling the rocks away from the boat mentality where what's important becomes what's urgent. Um, and culture, communication, they're never urgent, you know, unless, unless it's over. You know, if, if, if you have warring hostile tribes, then it's urgent, but there, there's nothing, there's nothing there anymore. <laughs> so yeah. you're not going to recover. Um, and um, this is common too, uh, particularly engineers, and I, I myself am an engineer, so I have more of this perspective. Um, there's a lot of pointing out difficulties without bringing solutions. And management's usual response to that pattern is cool, nothing. So there's a problem, there isn't a solution, therefore there's nothing for me to do, therefore I'm gonna do nothing. Um, and because of this collaborative nature between communication structure and design. Um, frequently, there's no solution to be had from the bottom up. So we have this situation where problems can bubble up from the bottom, but solutions, in fact, have to have to come from the top. Um, and so you get this disconnect where you need to inspire enough trust that problems will actually come to you. Um, but then you also need to actually solve those problems when they come up to you. Um, and that might not be your skill set at all. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, worst case scenario, the problem doesn't even have a solution. Um, you know, the, you know, two people who aren't speaking to each other are, are critical to your company and they don't speak to each other because, you know, they hate each other over a romantic rivalry. There's, there's no fixing that within the corporate structure. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's a startup where they're both equity holders. So it's, it's not like you can, you know, flip a coin and fire, fire Carl and, and, you know, hire somebody else to talk to Joe. Um, like Carl and Joe own the company and they won't talk to each other and, and you know, cash out now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, 
understanding and accepting that the social side of things and the technical side of things are actually mirrors of each other. And so that there are going to be social solutions that look good that cause technical problems and technical problems that look good that cause social problems. And being able to understand that both expertises are going to be necessary because if the technical boys basically say, well, you know, I can shave a millisecond off of, off of every cycle a day, um, as long as these three people, you know, sit in a room 24 seven and, and never leave it under any circumstances, that ain't gonna work. <laughs> um, but at the same time, uh, if you sort of casually say that, you know, have the computer figure out how this should work and that algorithm requires more operating time than the physical laws of the universe say that are available in our physical universe, that ain't gonna work either. And, and it's actually shockingly common for those kinds of situations to arise. And so you, you gotta, you have to be sensitive to it, acknowledge it. And it's, it's not, it's not just, you know, managers or engineers being obtuse. It's, it's that, it's that these two very different worlds that always reflect each other. There's no way to avoid Conway's law. So you're just stuck with it. You're, you're always gonna have this kind of perfect reflection between those two worlds. And so solutions that you come up with actually have to work both ways. That is so well said. I, and the, yeah, that's brilliant, that, that mirror. Um, just before we finish up, do you have any other thoughts or anything that we didn't get to that you wanna um, mention or finish off with? Uh, no, no, this was, this was a lot of fun, actually. It was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Cause this is a much more, um, I, I'm not much of a mathematic computer tech guy. Um, so it was really interesting seeing that other side of things that I rarely focus on. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for this. Um, if people want to connect with you, find out more about you in any way, is there a best way for them to do that at all? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, you can reach out to me uh, at Noah P. Healy, N-O-A-H-P-H-E-A-L-Y at yahoo.com or connect at, uh, Noah Healy on LinkedIn. Um, and I have a website that describes more about my market concept called uh, CoreDisc. That's C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C for our coordinated discovery. Um, that's, that's how the system works. Awesome. Um, and if you send me those links, I'll put them in the description for uh, this episode. Um, thank you Great. so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.